Two quick notes before we start the show. If you heard the last episode about the naked man who fell from the ceiling in the football game that split reality in two, I said in that episode that the next show was going to be a big, giant special one, but I still have a few more people I need to interview before it's done. And so this is still going to be an awesome episode, but it's just not going to be the one I was describing. And the second note is, it's just a reminder, if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do that by heading to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. And you can learn all the details over at the Patreon page. And now the show. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 42. So put this hand in the in the empty space, and then I need this hand in my lap. Uh, no, just lay it on the table. No, I'm right my right hand. Yeah, I'll just put it on the table. Okay. What you are hearing is me and my wife Amanda putting together one of the stranger experiments in psychology and neuroscience. It's one that you can easily do at your home, and I do recommend you try it. But it will look weird to anyone not familiar with what you're doing. Okay. You don't have to make it. Nice looking. It doesn't. It's it's just going to be functional. Can I have oh, it? Oh yes, you can. <laughs> nice looking. Why? Why shouldn't the experiment should look nice? All right. Okay. So if you want to do this, you will need a rubber glove. We use the kind that you can buy for cleaning the bathroom. Some cotton to stuff that glove. A blanket. A box. We used an old Amazon box and two small paintbrushes. So you set up the box so that you can put your left arm in hand on one side, hidden from your view. And then you cover your left side with the blanket. And finally, you just tuck that stuffed rubber glove under the blanket so that it pokes out. It should look like that could possibly be your hand. And then next, you have another person start rubbing both your real hand and the fake one in exactly the same way with those paintbrushes over and over again. Okay. Okay. Let me see what we have here. Here we go. All right. Um... How do you feel? I have no idea how to describe the way I feel right now. Describe Um, what you're looking at. Okay. So I'm looking at my right hand lying on the table and a pink glove stuffed with cotton um, in the place where my left hand should be, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I cannot see my left hand because it's hidden behind a partition Mm -hmm. um, to, to the left of me. Okay. At first, you'll think that this is silly and impossible and you'll laugh and you'll probably think that this just doesn't work on you, that maybe you're made differently than other people. But then after a minute or two, maybe longer, something very bizarre begins to happen. It it takes a second. What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Once it happens, you'll click over completely. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of creepy. What are you feeling? 
Although it feels like my hand is a few inches farther to the right than it actually is. I don't know. It just feels like I'm looking at my hand. <laughs> but you can't be. That's not your hand. But it does feel like it. All right. Let me, use this. Let me get the feathers. This is what's going to make it really good. That sound you just heard, <laughs> that was a hammer. I had it hidden the whole time, and right when the effect was strongest, I smacked the fake hand with it. That is not funny. <laughs> oh, my God. What, what did it feel like? Uh... Like you were hitting, I mean, okay, so I didn't, I didn't feel it being hit by the hammer, but I was terrified. Um, I, I felt the fear... That you feel right before your hand is about to be smashed with a hammer. It's <laughs> awesome. But the pain didn't register. But I was scared and I got the little, um, you know, adrenaline or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really frightened. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. All right, I want to do it. This is called the rubber hand illusion. It's part of a number of body ownership illusions that are also called body transfer effects. With the rubber hand one, what happens is if you position the fake hand closely to that of the real one and you sync up the strokes of the brushes very carefully, your subjective experience of ownership will begin to leave your biological hand and transfer over to the fake one. And the sensation of where your hand is in space will relocate and gradually, creepily, inch closer and closer to the rubber glove. It's a great illustration of the fact that your sensations of ownership and physical position are always illusory. And, you know, I use that word, and it's tricky to use words like that, but the point is that bodily ownership and spatial orientation are useful mirages generated by the brain, but they're far less useful when remapped onto inanimate objects. This is not completely understood, and there are many hypotheses and many weird experiments involving all sorts of body parts. Uh, surprisingly, one of those includes uh, some people who have missing naughty bits, and you use this sort of uh, rubber hand thing and make this illusion, and you can reawaken feelings inside those people that they felt they would never feel again. Another line of research that is just now underway involves putting people in one group in the bodies of people in another. In other words, if you are Caucasian and the rubber hand is black, once you've experienced the body transfer effect, it seems as though it also changes your deepest, most hidden, unconscious, and involuntary biases. Scientists today are even replacing entire bodies using virtual reality and placing people inside avatars designed to look like members of groups and subcultures to which the subjects do not belong, maybe could never belong, and the results have been... Well, they've been very trippy, to say the least. So, can changing your body, even for just a few minutes, change your mind? Can a psychological body transfer melt away long-held opinions and unconscious prejudices? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. 
My name is David McCraney, and on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we celebrate self-delusion by exploring a new topic in the psychology and neuroscience of reasoning and judgments and decision-making and also, you know, things like attitudes and behaviors and assumptions and thoughts and intuitions and emotions. And in this episode, we are discussing bodily resonance with cognitive neuroscientist Laura Maester, whose research has recently uncovered a new way to change people's minds. You can change people's minds by changing their bodies. Well, temporarily, at least in both cases. And part of what she does is centered around this notion of bodily resonance. And bodily resonance is that sensation you get in your body when watching other people. For instance, let's say you see someone burn his or her hand. You're going to go, Ooh, and you're going to feel a shade of that pain in your own hand or when you see someone up on stage and they're feeling embarrassed in some way or they're they're you know they're feeling uh, anxious you will feel that same embarrassment and that same anxiety and you you might even cringe and hope that they you know find a way to escape those terrible emotions bodily resonance is a big part of why movies and television shows work at all because we can empathize and connect to actors who professionally pretend to feel certain emotions or to feel certain sensations. And in psychology and neuroscience, bodily resonance is now being measured at the level of synapses and brain regions. And we now know that you actually, the, the brain itself, it actually does mimic to a degree the same activity in other brains when observing the bodies that those brains control. But, and this is kind of horrifying, but research has also shown that this neurological empathy is dampened when observing people who you believe belong to groups to which you do not belong, or as they call these groups in psychology, your out groups. And this could be people of a different gender or race or age or nationality or religion. It all depends on how strongly you identify with your in-group and how strongly you do not identify with your out group. But in experiments, people tend to feel a much weaker bodily resonance with people who fall under the category of the other. So after the break, you will hear an interview with Laura Maester, who, along with a group of other scientists, is exploring that fact and experimenting with ways to transfer feelings of inclusion to the out group by transferring feelings of ownership away from subjects' own bodies. And all that is coming up after this word from our sponsor. Like so many of you, I am sure that you love learning about how the mind works, finding explanations about why we behave the way we do. And that's why I'm sure that you will be as fascinated as I was by the Great Courses series, Behavioral Economics When Psychology and Economics Collide, taught by Professor Scott Hutel. And he draws on methods from psychology and sociology and neuroscience and economics, and he offers these insights. Uh, he, he brings about these nuggets of information that I'm sure that you have never seen before, you never even thought about before, all about how humans approach and ultimately make decisions. And he also provides these powerful and practical tools in the course to help you make better and more satisfying decisions in your own life. So this, this is not self-help. This is not mushy. This is not opinion. This is hardcore evidence. This is science. These are things that we have recently learned about how the mind works in laboratories out there in the real world. 
And a lot of it is very counterintuitive. My favorite stuff is counterintuitive. In fact, there's a whole lecture just on when incentives backfire. So phenomena by which, you know, you, an incentive, you put it out there, you try to encourage people to do things and it actually decreases motivation for the behavior that you're trying to increase. In other words, sometimes rewards actually make people less likely to do something in the future. It's a really cool course. It's hours and hours long and you will really enjoy it. And right now you can get it for 80% off along with eight other of the best-selling courses at The Great Courses. And you can do that by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And so what is this? The Great Courses are celebrating their 25th anniversary with more than 500 courses right now on a variety of subjects, including courses that are taught by people that you probably are familiar with, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example. And they're all taught by top professors and experts in their field. And you can get them on DVDs. You can stream these courses through an app. You can get them on CDs to listen to in the car, or you can get them as online downloads to listen any way you want. And right now, you can get eight of their best courses, their best-selling courses, including the one I just described, Behavioral Economics, at 80% off of the original price. To do this, to order Behavioral Economics with my special offer from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now, back to our program. Our guest in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is Laura Maester, who is a cognitive neuroscientist who does research at the Department of Psychology at the Royal Holloway University of London. Her main line of research is body representation and how human beings perceive their own bodies and how that affects their interactions with others and how the perception of your own body can change your own social cognition. And her most recent research is called Changing Bodies changes minds, how owning another body affects your social cognition. We're going to hear all about it right now. Let's pick her brain. Okay. Um, so tell me, Laura, how do we know that our body is our body? <laughs> well, that's quite a hard question. Um, so I think intuitively we just think, well, surely I just know but actually, um, it's a sort of continuous updating process. We take in lots of different information from all our different senses, and our body kind of, our brain kind of integrates that to continually update how we know what's part of our body, what's not, and what we look like. So, um, in your research into this is sort of absolutely amazing because it involves a number of effects I don't think most people are very familiar with. Um, and at first, like, what you do kind of seems like some mad scientist experiment kind of thing, um, <laughs> changing ownership of your body with others and with objects. It's really incredible stuff. And to understand it, I think there's a couple of things we have to like um, make sense of. Uh, and one thing you talk about a lot in this uh, recent article is, is something called bodily resonance. What is bodily mm -hmm. resonance? Um, basically, um, when we see another person, uh, experiencing a, a bodily state. So by that, I mean quite a range of things like performing an action, um, feeling an emotion, uh, feeling a touch on their bodies, um, or feeling pain, for example. Um, we don't just see them experiencing that. We actually kind of resonate with them. So um, it's been shown that we kind of, to some extent, experience the same bodily states that we're seeing the other person experience. 
So, for example, um, if we saw someone performing an action um, without realising it, we might be quite likely to start mimicking that action. So if perhaps we're sitting in a room with someone who's tapping their foot a lot, we're a lot more likely to start tapping our foot in response to them. Um, and we can see this at the level of the brain. So if we see someone performing an action, um, the areas of our brain that are activated when we ourselves perform that action are activated just the same when we see that action. And it's the same with emotions and pain and um, touch experiences as well. So that's what we kind of refer to as this sort of resonance between people, this sort of bodily resonance. Uh-huh. And it, this is this has to do with, and you know, people have heard this before, but this has to do with mirror neurons, correct? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think uh, kind of traditionally when we think about mirror neurons, we tend to think about um, parts of the brain in the in the premotor cortex that are activated when we see someone performing an action, um, just the same as when we perform that action ourselves. Um, but more recently, these kind of mirror-like behaviours in the brain have also been found in areas um, processing touch. So we... Um, show activity in parts of our somatosensory cortex when we see someone being touched on their bodies, just the same as what would happen in our brains if we got touched. Um, so there are quite a few areas of the brain now that seem to have these kind of mirror-like properties. And you mentioned something, uh, this, there's, this is a really interesting experiment in a, uh, where you see someone touching their face and, uh, and you call it the vis- this visual remapping mm-hmm. of touch. What What is happening in one of those kind of... Um, what are those kind of experiments? Um, so this is kind of a cool effect, um, and it's quite a nice measure of this kind of bodily resonance. So um, what happens is um, it's been found that when uh, someone gets touched on their face um, very, very gently, so they're kind of um, around the threshold of perception, um, people's sensitivity to those touches on their face is increased when they see someone else being touched at that same moment. So... Um, what happens in practice is a participant has these little um, little uh, tactile stimulators attached to their face and they get delivered very, very tiny little touches and they have to say um, simply whether they feel a touch or whether they don't feel a touch. Um, and we've found that their accuracy is um, significantly improved when they're sat with a person in front of them getting touched at the same time. And that's kind of behavioural evidence of this sort of somatosensory resonance. So it's the idea that seeing someone else being touched kind of activates your own kind of touch areas, if you like. Um, and it makes you more likely and more sensitive to perceive touch on your own face. That's so, that's so amazing. It's so weird and so fascinating. Um, is there any speculation as to how this would have, you know, become part of our uh, response to the world as to how this is is this adaptive or is it just some sort of, uh, you know, happy accident of, of evolution? What, do, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's an interesting. Um, I would think it would be pretty adaptive. Um, so, for example, if you see someone in pain and it's someone, you know, in, in your close social group, I, I think it would be pretty adaptive to um, sort of be able to detect that and perhaps kind of um, respond appropriately to that. Um, because it perhaps more likely for you to have that painful event happen to yourself as well. Um, so yeah, you can you can see why there might be sort of evolutionary benefits to a mechanism like that. Mm-hmm. So um, this gets us to the weird to the really weird stuff, which is um, 
some re- research into this, specifically this visual remapping of touch, is that um, it, it seems to be, uh, as, as uh, some of the scientists you've talked about, that it seems to be modulated by the the how familiar the face is to you or or whether or not it's inside in your you consider it something as part of your out group or your in group uh, could you sort yeah. of explain how that is um how that changes how we feel when it comes to some of these uh these bodily resonance things so i think that's really interesting and and, and there's a lot of different uh areas of research now that suggest that sort of yeah, this in-group, out-group classification can really affect how we resonate with others. Um, and it's quite an automatic thing that we do. When we meet someone new, we just automatically and unconsciously categorise them as either like me or not like me. Um, and this sort of categorization can be based on so many different types of information. Um, so one salient type of information would be racial group membership, but it could also be, you know, how how someone dresses, their political affiliations, um, uh, what school they went to, you know, all, all these different types of social information. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, for taking the visual remapping of touch example, they found that um, if uh, the person is looking at a face being touched, um, and that face belongs to a different racial group to their own race, um, they don't show this effect so much, so they don't show this resonance. Um, and that's kind of fascinating. Um, and intuitively, I would think, okay, well, maybe it's because the face of the other race person um, is quite different perceptually to your own face. So maybe you just don't remap because they look different. Um, but actually, they've replicated this with uh, political group membership as well. So obviously, someone who belongs to a different political party to yourself doesn't look different, um, but they just have different beliefs. So it shows that it's not just perceptual um, characteristics that's driving this. It's not just that someone looks different, um, that that's the reason why you're not resonating. It's actually how you categorize them as feeling different to yourself or similar. Now, that is surprising to me, and I'm sure to many people, because it's it implies that our our social and cultural attitudes and and the cognition that that surrounds all that is you know somehow being intertwined with actual physical feelings and you know perceptions of um, you know receiving input from uh, sensory modalities and things mm-hmm. like that. It, it, that does is that was that a surprising finding uh, to you as well? Yeah, I, th- I think everyone was really fascinated. There's um... Another study uh, looking at empathy for pain, um, which uh, investigates this uh, thing called the sort of um, sensory motor brain response to pain. So um, when we see someone else in pain, uh, for example, experiencing a kind of a painful event happening to them, usually it's a it's a hand being stabbed with a needle or something um, <laughs> nice. <like that>. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, we find that this inhibits the corticospinal system um, as if we ourselves were feeling that pain. Um, so there's various ways of measuring this, but um, one study by Alessio Avenanti um, showed that when you see a hand of a racial outgroup experiencing this painful stimulus, uh, you don't show that corticospinal um, inhibition. Um, and I found that quite a kind of depressing finding um, <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's at such a sort of fundamental automatic level. It's nothing to do with cognition as such. It's nothing to do with like um, 
how you're thinking about that person at that moment. It is just your kind of resonance, your sort of physiological resonance with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and an in- interesting aspect of that study was, again, they showed that it wasn't just because the hand looked different to your own, because they had a, a control condition where they showed participants um, a bright purple hand. Um, just to check whether it was just visual similarity that was, or visual dissimilarity that was causing this kind of this empathic response. Um, and even more depressingly, um, they found that actually um, the empathic response to the purple hand feeling pain was completely normal. It was just the same as when you saw your racial in-group feeling pain. So it was just the racial out-group um, that was sort of culturally learned to be different um, that showed this sort of suppressed empathic response. That is insane. That's something that's like... I mean, it, it's like a filter that overlays your experiences. Like it's an it's a additional response to the raw information, and it's um, that's it's it's shocking. It, like I feel, I can feel the doors opening to all these lines of research to try to understand what's yeah. going on there. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's also interesting that they found um, and actually a lot of these studies they found that. Um, the reduction in neural resonance with people from other races um, quite strongly correlates with your kind of um, implicit racial biases. Um, So these sort of um, changes in uh, physiological bodily responses to people um, is clearly quite directly linked to your sort of way you think about these people, your attitudes towards them. It's amazing, yeah, because of the in the implied um, in the implied attitude tests that, and there's a there's so much research into this. It's all really, really mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Where the like they'll have um, they'll show uh, faces, uh, they'll show Caucasians, they'll show them black faces, and then after that, you take a test where you look at it uh, like a, a hammer, and you have to determine whether or not it's a tool or a weapon very quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, people s- tend to mistake or tend to call things that are neutral uh weapons more often after seeing a black face when they're primed that way there's another one where there's a fuzzy picture of a, of a gun slowly comes into focus and people who've been primed in a similar way will see it more quickly as a gun than as than other people who are still trying to figure out what it is um and that's that's why uh your research the stuff that we're getting to here is uh is sort of it messes with it, it takes all the things that we're talking about and sort of mushes them together and, and you found some really crazy stuff um but to set the stage, I think we need to understand what the rubber hand illusion that you talked about. That's crazy, which is the, <laughs> that's putting the hand down and rubbing it and, and slowly feeling like your hand is the rubber hand. Um, yeah. If you go, you can go on YouTube and watch someone do this and they'll, the knife will come down onto the fake hand. And when it hits it, people shriek because they have <laughs> moved over. What, but what is the infacement illusion? That's, that's something I had never heard of before. Um, so that's, conceptually pretty much identical to the rubber hand illusion just with faces um but instead of a a rubber face which would look pretty freaky we use a real person's face um so the idea is the same so um we'll have the participant sitting uh facing another person so it can be a video on a computer screen which we've used quite often but also it could be just a real person in front of them um and the crucial bit is where the experimenter touches the participant's cheek um, at exactly the same time and in synchronous rhythm with um, a touch on the other person's cheek. Um, And what this does is um, the participant feels the touch on their own cheek but sees the touch on the other person's cheek um, in exact synchrony. And it's, it's that synchrony that kind of elicits this feeling of ownership over the other person's face. 
um, it, it kind of develops this weird experience, like you're looking in a mirror, but seeing someone else's face. Um, and people report all sorts of crazy experiences during this. Um, but we've also found really interesting things um, about what happens after the illusion. Um, one of them is that we actually change the way people remember what their own face looks like. Um, and this is a bit of evidence showing how kind of malleable um, and how sort of plastic our idea of what we look like is, that we can change it so easily. Um, but people actually think they look a little bit more like the other person than they did before the illusion. Um, so that's, you know, a really fascinating finding because you, you wouldn't think that it would be so easy to change. Um, but yeah, it is. So it is. So it's, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I always assume that I just have, that these things are sort of set in my mind, but, um, this research suggests that like you were saying, these mental representations of our own bodies and our feelings of ownership, are, are they're not they're malleable they're changeable and and they're it's because they're being constantly updated like you said before it is does that seems very strange doesn't it yeah it, it does in one way but then when you consider how much our appearances change over our lifetime as we grow and age it, it kind of makes sense that the way we remember what we look like does have to be constantly updated otherwise we'd end up with the situation where one day we look in the mirror and don't recognize ourselves um, and it, it makes sense that every time we do look in the mirror or look down at our own bodies, that very, very subtle everyday changes are, are encoded somewhere in our brains so that we're not shocked by it the next time we look down at our bodies. Um, so in, th in that way, it does make sense that our, our brains can respond to these changes appropriately. Yeah. And, and it's important to, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an odd thing to think about, but, you know, this your feeling of ownership is a feeling, you know, it's like, uh, it's almost, it's, it is the idea that you can, you, you look at your hand and you feel you're in control of it and then it can be moved over into an artificial hand, um, really shows, you know, there, there's a, there's something biological at play. There's mm -hmm. something, it's not, uh, you know, it, this, this, our mental world is, uh, um, the fact that it is plastic is astonishing to me. And, and you, you took this concept and you, sort of married it with um, uh, trying to see if our social attitudes are also malleable. So um, if you could, did you sort of take me through this research that, uh, that, that you did with the rubber hand and playing around with social attitudes? Yeah, so um, I think the idea came from... Um, one interesting uh, result of the rubber hand illusion, actually, which is similar to um, the result I just talked about with the enfacement illusion, where afterwards participants think that they look a little bit more like the other person's face. Um, that also happens with the rubber hand illusion. So after experiencing the illusion, um, participants will think that um, the rubber hand is perceptually sort of, um, in terms of the, its visual appearance, more similar to their own hand. Um, and this got us thinking that could this work with hands that were very much different to your own perceptually, um, for example, a hand belonging to another racial group. So um, what we did was we um, gave Caucasian participants the rubber hand illusion uh, with a black rubber hand. Um, and we found that the, this difference in race of the rubber hand had no effect on the strength of the illusion. So people feel an illusion regardless of what the hand looks like in terms of its uh, visual appearance. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we were kind of uh, encouraged by the fact that people could experience ownership over other race body. Um, and therefore, then we ended up with this question, well, if we can kind of experience ownership over a body of another race, uh, can we change how we feel towards that race? So that was the kind of the, the basis of our um, research question. So, so what happened? So what, what was uh, <laughs> it's, it's a <laughs> <laughs> So um, I mean, I, I understand that you do. This is sort of you start with that with some of these uh, this previous research. These sort of these things where you identify people have unconscious biases that we yeah. wish we didn't have. Uh, we have no control over them. They're automatic. They're unconscious. And then you put them through this visual illusion thing. Just, just sort of take me through what happened with uh, that, all that research. Yeah, so um, what we did was first we measured um, participants' implicit racial biases. So obviously we can measure racial attitudes in, in two ways. We could do it explicitly by pretty much asking them, you know, with a questionnaire or something. But obviously that has problems with social desirability. So people aren't honest on those type of questionnaires. Um, so we use this implicit measure um, called an implicit association test um, that can uh, assess um, people's racial biases in a kind of unconscious way. So it's kind of harder to fake, basically. Uh, so we measured people's baseline racial biases um, and then we exposed them to this rubber hand illusion with the um, hand of a racial outgroup. So in this case, it was Caucasian participants, so um, white participants seeing a black hand. Um, and then after the illusion, we again measured their implicit racial attitudes one more time with the same tool. Um, and what we found was that there was a significant decrease in their negative racial biases after experiencing the illusion with the black hand. Um, and this decrease was correlated with the intensity of illusion that they felt. So um, there's always a range of um, experiences that people have. So some people are very uh, susceptible to these sorts of bodily illusions and have really, really strong feelings of ownership, whereas some people aren't so susceptible. Um, and we found that those people who were most susceptible to the illusion felt really, really strong ownership over the black hand, showed the biggest change in racial bias, so they became less biased. And this was also done um, in from other with other researchers, The uh, and this is crazy, but you can actually completely change ownership into a complete virtual mm -hmm. virtual body as well through uh like a virtual reality uh holodeck kind of experience with with modern day um you know virtual reality technology correct yeah so um this was some research that was independently carried out um by mel slater in his lab in uh, barcelona um, and they use virtual reality to um get people to embody uh virtual avatars um, and they measure the effects on different aspects of social cognition. So um, in his study, they um, got white participants to embody um, a black avatar um, and just move around this virtual em environment. They could look down at their own bodies and they'd see a black body. And there was also a mirror in the virtual environment, a virtual mirror. So they could go in front of the mirror and they'd see what their own face looked like. Um, so they gave um, participants... Uh, a few minutes to kind of explore this environment and look at their own bodies. Um, and then again, they measured the racial bias and independently, they found pretty much the same results as what we'd found with the rubber hand. So they found a significant decrease in um, negative racial bias after embodying this black avatar. That is amazing. And, 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 and there was one other one too, which was the, as we were, we were talking about earlier, the, um, the experiment with, with uh, feeling ownership of 
another face. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened in that experiment when, when it was uh, when racial bias was uh, was added to the part of the experimental conditions? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, that one used um, yeah the infacement illusion uh, with a, a black face as the infaced face, um, and the the sort of measure of interest with that one was the visual remapping of touch, which we just uh, spoke about. So they wanted to see whether um, it's experiencing ownership over a black face um, could increase your sort of uh, sensory resonance with that person afterwards. And they did find that um, experiencing that infacement illusion um, made you resonate more with these tactile experiences that you were seeing on the other person's face. So it seemed to kind of alleviate the um, the reduced resonance um, to racial outgroups that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, there's a line in in, in your um, in your article. You do you say you know changing your body changes your mind, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's part of the title too. Changing your body ch- it changes your mind. Um, and it, you know, it's uh, different. People have different opinions about whether or not you can change minds. Whether or not a person's um, social attitudes are changeable, or their opinions about people and who have come from other political uh, tribes, or people that are um, you know in different outgroups, whether it's gender, race, uh, mm-hmm. age, any of that stuff. It, a lot of people feel like that's like it's locked in stone and it has, there has to be like a generational, um, you know, uh, a churn for change to take place. But your research suggests that, that social attitudes are malleable. What, 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 what is your, um, what are your thoughts on that, on that aspect of this research? Well, we've definitely shown that at least on the short term, social attitudes are really malleable. Um, and we're, we're looking at implicit attitudes here. So, so they're not sort of under cognitive control. Um, and we're, we're showing changes, significant changes after only two minutes of, you know, experiencing these illusions. Um, but it's important to point out that we've not actually yet tested how long these changes last. Um, so actually we're in the process now of investigating um, whether these changes in racial bias extend beyond, you know, one week, two weeks. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But actually, um, currently, we don't have that data yet. So um, all we know is that uh, we can elicit an immediate change. Um, because there's so many different influences on on, on these social attitudes, um, of course, if we elicited an illusion, we changed um, a social attitude, and then someone went right back into their their normal society where these sort of negative stereotypes were enforced again, I think it would probably undo it pretty quickly. Right. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a question of the fact that there's so many different influences of these social attitudes um, that just changing one temporarily is probably not going to alter any of the others. Um, and so what do you think is the process that's at play here? Like what is um, like when, when you try to, after you've done this research and you're looking at it, what do you think, um, what is the, what is occurring in the, in the processing of this information and the self-association and all that sort of stuff? That's a really hard question. And we're still not sure um, because what we're doing with the bodily illusions is changing something very low level and very perceptual. Um, but we're actually seeing an influence on something that's quite kind of conceptual, um, if you like, an implicit social attitude. 
Um, so it's, it's a case of working out exactly what mechanism links these two things together. Um, and we think it might be something to do with the change in perceived similarity between um, yourself and the person that you're embodying, you know, the person you're feeling the illusion over. Um, so if you, after the illusion, perceive that person as looking more similar to yourself, um, we suspect that this kind of has a knock-on effect to perceived similarity in other domains. So if you think that someone looks like you, there's evidence to um, suggest that that makes you also think that the other person um, thinks like you or is like you. Um, and so we think that it kind of has this kind of perceived similarity has a sort of knock-on effect in other aspects of perceived similarity. Um, so, for example, if, if um, I saw someone who looked like me, um, there's evidence to suggest that um, I just assume that that person has um, similar beliefs to me too. So we kind of generalise this perception of similarity. Um, and so that might be what is at play here, but we're not quite sure yet. And we have to think of ways to kind of work out what mechanisms are at play. Um, that's so cool. That's such great research. Um... I know people are going to want to keep up with you, like what, like they want to find you and, and, and learn more about what, what you're up to. How could someone, uh, how could someone do that? Um, so we've got a uh, lab website. The, um, our lab in London uh, is run by Professor Manos Securis, Um and we're at Royal Holloway University of London. Um, so if you Google uh, my name and that university, um, you should be able to find me. And we've got all our papers on there and our kind of current research projects. So um, in addition to this stuff on race, we're also looking at how these bodily illusions can influence things like emotion recognition and empathy um, and all sorts of other things like that. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a, a good repository for all of that. Great. Um, well, look, thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with me and, and I love, I love what you're doing. I think it's really important work and, uh, I really, I just, I hope, I hope you have uh, great success in the future and figuring out how all this really, really plays out and how it works together and how it uh, connects to other research. So, uh, best wishes in all of that. Thank you very much. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. On each C episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or I talk about a scientific study right after eating a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com, as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And this week's recipe comes from Jessica Rose. I don't know if that was a typo, Jessica, because you have a Z in your name, but I like it. And uh, the uh, the cookie recipe you sent in, I have it right here in front of me. She didn't name these cookies. She did not give these cookies a name. So we decided just to call these uh, Jessica's. Uh, or or we actually thought that maybe this could be called um, Jezza cookies. So uh, let's call them those, Jezza cookies. And Jezza cookies are uh, unsalted butter, brown sugar, uh, peanut butter, vanilla flour, baking soda, butter, peanut butter morsels, white chocolate chips and mini chocolate chips. And you, uh, you sift all that together. You whisk all the things in and you mush it all up and it makes these beautiful little, uh, little balls, um, little, uh, 
glossy cookie, uh, proto cookies. And then when they come out of the, um, uh, you actually, um, uh, my wife, she took a fork and she did a, a cross pattern on, on the, uh, you know, like a hash pattern on, on top of the cookies. And when they come out, they look like these wonderful, you know, peanut butter cookies and they are, uh, they're nice and big, like, like they're, they're thick. So, uh, let's try this right now, Jessica. I, uh, I am looking forward to these, uh, previously unnamed, but now named Jezza cookies, cookies. Let's try one right now. And here we go. Mm. Oh boy, ma'am. It is so good. It is, um, it's nice and mushy and like really soft. Like it really gives, it's really slow, like, and then right as you get down to the bottom of the bite resistance. So it's not like, it's like cake, 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 cookie, 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 crunch. One molecule of crunch right there at the very end. And, um, there's just so much stuff inside of them. It's all these little tidbits. And so you've got the white chocolate and and the dark chocolate and the, uh, the peanut butter morsels and it all sort of swirls together. This is like something, um, this is like the kind of cookie that cookie scientists who work at Chips Ahoy and places like that, this is what they were trying to replicate. And uh, if you want to go back to the source code, you want to get back to patient zero of the cookie that they use in, in those labs to uh, make the mass-produced cookies, this is the recipe for you. Thank you so much, Jessica Rose. I love it. Um, these are very delicious. She says in her email, this is one of many of my favorite cookies to make. I hope you pick it. And if you do, enjoy all caps, exclamation point. They are delicious. I agree, Jessica. Thank you so much. I'm calling them Jezza cookies. A uh, a book, a sign book is headed straight to you. And uh, you can find the recipe for this cookie, everyone else who's listening, over at youarenotsosmart.com. So let's talk about some self-delusion news, shall we? Our self-delusion news in this episode comes from the Harvard Business Review. The headline is... Uh, Mindfulness mitigates biases you may not know you have by Nicole Torres. And this falls in line with what we were talking about in this episode, what we were talking about with Laura Maester just a minute ago. And um, if you want to see the actual research, the name of the paper is Mindfulness Meditation Reduces Implicit Age and Race Bias, The Role of Reduced Automaticity of Responding. And that's in the Social, Psychological, and Personality Science Journal. And it was published in, on uh, November 24th. And so... Um, it's uh, it's really great research because what they did is they brought in a bunch of students, 72 people, are uh, uh, white college students, and they didn't tell them what they were uh, about to do. And what they did is they sort of brought them to this guided mindfulness meditation. Um, they had them focus on their heart rate and their breathing. They listened to a recording that talked about uh, their sensations and their thoughts, and it was about uh, 10 minutes. And then they had them uh, go do the um, implicit attitude test that we were talking about, the uh, implicit association tests. Um, and the in the implicit association test is one of those uh, tests that you um, you answer a bunch of questions, you look at pictures, you do all sorts of stuff, and, and they reveal your hidden racial biases, your hidden racism that you didn't know you, you had, but it's in there somewhere. It's automatic. It's uncontrollable. And for the most part, you are unaware of it. And um, what they found in the research was that after doing this mindfulness training, Compared to another group of people who didn't do that, the people who went through the mindfulness experience had, they showed a much less uh, implicit racial bias. And they also uh, tested people for age bias, you know, associating old people with bad things. And they found there was much less bias in that category as well. And so in the article uh, from the um, Harvard Business Review, 
the researcher is quoted as saying that we often have other things in our mind, regardless of whether we are at work or not. Uh, our to-do list, the date we went on the night before mulling over an episode of the walking dead and, uh, thinking about what we're going to have for dinner. He says that, uh, if you just take a, a second to be more mindful about your own thoughts and about what's happening to you right now, instead of thinking about the future or the past, it seems as that, um, doing that before making a decision will help rid that decision of biases that you might not even know that are inside of your mind, changing the way you think and feel. Very interesting stuff. And of course, we have to always say this is one study. There has, there has to be replication. And of course, um, this is just uh, one study out of many that will you know, turn into a big mountain of evidence for or against this, this aspect of what we're learning in the science of the mind. But if you want to read more about it, go to the actual research, which is Mindfulness Meditation Reduces Implicit Age and Race Bias, The Role of Reduced Automaticity of responding. And if you want to read about it in the Harvard Business Review, it's mindfulness mitigates biases you may not know you have. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. Head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. And you can find links to everything that I talked about today there at youarenotsosmart.com, as well as information about both of my books. You can send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie, I'll send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Plus on Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog, and I'm at David McRaney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are by uh, Banjo Apocalypse this episode, and sometimes they're also by Drew Garraway. Either. No, no, left. no, we're doing this one. Which hand is that? It's my left hand. <laughs> Which way is left? Um, so this is a left hand glove. This is a left hand glove. And we use stuff that's full.